But we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for about a year now, a little over, and we looked at that text actually a few months ago. And so chronologically, this morning, we've arrived at Jesus' death. And then Good Friday, Steve will be preaching, and then on next Sunday will be Easter, his resurrection. And Luke has been telling us since the beginning of this journey that God came and dwelt among us, that he ate, that he slept, that he laughed, that he wept with human beings. And then, as we'll see in just a moment, that he died for us. And as we said last week, it's not enough to know that these things happened, but why did they happen? It's not enough to know that he died, but why did he die? And how are we implicated, both as a community and as individuals? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And this is our gospel reading from Luke 23. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and actions. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray again together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for an account of these things. Would you open us to the encouragement that lies within, the challenge that lies within? Would you open us to new life through this event? We're all coming from different directions, different places and stations in life, different stages in our spiritual journey. Some of us know this story. We've heard it dozens, if not hundreds of times. Others of us are unsure what we think about this story and if we're ready to believe it, at least in all of its significance. But what is common among us is that none of us need more how-tos. None of us need more tips for how to live a great life. None of us need more techniques for better spiritual devotion. We need the gospel. We need to wrestle with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us today and what it means for the world. And to do that, we need your help. So Holy Spirit, come, and would you enable us to hear and listen and respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few more exciting units in the 
U.S. military than the Combat Search and Rescue Division. And if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down or read the book, you've seen this unit in action. Their job is to go into the heart of danger and going after and rescuing pilots and other soldiers who may have been captured by the enemy or are in danger of being captured. And every time they rescue someone, they jot it down, they call it as a save. They make around 100 saves a year in combat situations uh, on average right now. And during Hurricane Hurricane Katrina, this same division on U.S. soil made 4,000 saves. Because their mission is so dangerous, they live on the razor's edge between saving a life and giving up their own life. But the motto of this division is clear. The motto is, so that others may live. When asked why they risk and sometimes lose their lives for other fellow soldiers, one former lieutenant in this division said, they're our brothers and sisters in arms, and we're going to do everything feasible to bring that person back alive. And Later in the interview, he added to this that it's very hard, if not impossible, to rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued. If someone on the ground is waiting and participating and giving in to this rescue, it's so much easier than it is if someone doesn't want to be rescued. At the cross, God is moving into the war zone of sin and evil, and he's reconciling the world back to himself. He's risking and losing his life so that others can live. And the motto of the cross could be very much the same, so that others may live. But we see also the cross divide humanity into two types of people, those who are looking for, wanting, waiting for rescue, and those who don't want to be rescued. And those two people have a very different response to the cross. We're going to look just at three things. There is a lot going on in this text that we can't give attention to. Luke gives us a lot of details to demonstrate later in our passage about how impossible it was for the disciples and particularly the women to get this tomb wrong, for them to have made a mistake, that it was in fact Jesus of Nazareth being crucified on a cross in a particular tomb that had not been used yet. And he gives us all of this details to flesh out that this is a trustworthy account of these events. But we're going to look primarily at the first set of of verses where we see a darkness and we see a curtain and we see a witness. Now, first of all, darkness. Darkness is a frequent metaphor throughout Scripture, and it means something very important. And Luke picks up on this. When Jesus is arrested in the garden What does Jesus say to those who come to arrest him? He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And from noon to three, we're told that darkness hovered over this scene, that from the the writer's perspective, from the witness perspective, that the sun stopped shining. It was so dark. And as far as we can tell, many things have been posited to explain this event meteorologically, but however God chose to do it, what we, can t- what we know for sure is that this was a supernatural event. The timing was supernatural. The significance was supernatural. That a darkness came and hovered over this scene. In the Bible, physical darkness has a spiritual reality. And in the garden, when Jesus is arrested, as we said, there's darkness. When Peter betrays, when Peter denies Jesus, 
there's darkness. And now here, there's physical darkness representing a spiritual darkness. The darkness we can see mirrors, mirrors a spiritual darkness that we can't see. Now, we who live in Portland know about light deprivation. We know about the many weeks that can go by, and it becomes gray. And what does our mood do, especially those of us who have the, what's called seasonal affective disorder, which I just realized this morning is SAD. I don't, I'm not observant, but it's sad, seasonal affective disorder. And our emotional life, especially if we have that condition, but most of us, given time deprived of light, our emotional life erodes. We can even get depressed and even sick. And in the same way, we need spiritual light or our wholeness, our humanness, our emotional well-being, our spiritual health erodes. What's happening here at the cross is a physical darkness is mirroring a spiritual darkness where the religious leaders, where the Roman authorities and guards and the crowds actually reject the light that God is offering. However God chose to manifest this darkness, it's a sign from him that what is going on is absolutely unjust, that this is, in fact, the darkest time that the earth has ever known. You may have seen the movie The Natural back in the 1980s, and it was a hit. It's a baseball movie, and it was a hit because guys like sports movies and because, at least at that time, women liked Robert Redford. And so everyone went to see this movie. And Roy Hobbs is the great baseball player that gets shot and then comes back to baseball late in life, and he's the protagonist. He's the hero of the story. And he goes to visit in his office, who's the, the villain, the antagonist, the owner of the team, who's also known as the judge. And it's completely dark in his office. All the shades are drawn shut to keep the light out, and you can barely see one another. And what the judge says is that as a child, he was afraid of the dark. He'd wake up in a flood of tears. So instead of being beholden to this fear, he decided to dive into it. He took it upon himself to accustom himself so fully to darkness that not only does he, not, does he no longer fear it, but he actually prefers it. He's become accustomed to the darkness. Now, it's possible in our lives that we've become, or we become from time to time, so accustomed to spiritual darkness that we don't even recognize it anymore, that we become comfortable in it. And the light, spiritual light from Jesus is so bright that it makes us blink and turn away and hide and cover. We become accustomed to it and maybe even prefer it. And spiritual darkness, true spiritual darkness, is not what we live in, but it's what other people live in. People like these religious leaders, people like the Roman centurions, people like those that are putting Jesus to death. And so we can disassociate ourselves from this story by saying that's true spiritual darkness, and if I were there, I would have done it differently. We keep the spiritual darkness out there so we don't have to be implicated. But what the Bible seems to suggest, what Luke is suggesting throughout this gospel, is that the spiritual darkness is not simply misdeeds or bad behavior or evil works, but it is simply, at its bottom, it is a turning away from God. It is a rejecting of the true source of light. 
It is a rejection of the gift of the gospel, the gift of Jesus. And if that's true spiritual darkness, then all of us are implicated in his death. All of us are present, not just the Roman guards, not just the religious leaders, not just the crowds that were there, but you and I, 2,000 years later, are implicated. Spiritual darkness, sin, if you will, is a preference for life on our own terms. It's seeking to have God orbit around us rather than us orbit around him. Why is Jesus on the cross? One perspective is to to pay the penalty that is due for sins. But keeping in mind what we've seen in Luke, Jesus is offering himself as a substitute, yes, to pay for sins, for the really bad behavior, for the evil deeds, even of those around him. Father, forgive them for what they are doing. These people that are putting him to death, certainly the most evil behavior possible, he says this death is for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But it's not only the bad behavior that you and I do, but it's all the ways that you and I are content to live in the dark, all the ways that we make our home in the dark, that we become accustomed to it, all the ways that we reject the light, all the ways that we refuse the offer of life, that we try to keep the evil out there. That's just as dark and just as much in need of Jesus' atoning death to pay for. And isn't that exactly what's going on here? There's murder, there's violence, there's arrogance that is happening but is also, at the bottom of that, a turning away, a rejecting of the gift of God in the, in the most acute sense. It's a rejecting of Jesus as the gift from God, as the offer of salvation, as the light, and everyone says no, and they reject it. Those who choose to turn into the spiritual light, to open themselves up, to spiritual light, begin to understand that though we may have tamed our sin, though we may choose more socially amenable behaviors, that given the right circumstances that we too would put Jesus on trial, and in fact we do every day in a very real sense, that given the right circumstances that we would stand idly by like Pilate as the religious leaders hatch this murderous plot, that given the right circumstances that we, just like the religious leaders, would prefer to keep sin out there, and Jesus threatens us and our routine and our self-righteousness, and so we put him to death. What we see is that Jesus is on the cross, offering light and salvation, not only to truly terrible people, but run-of-the-mill sinners, just like you and me that we all stand before the cross from the same distance and the same perspective, needing the same amount of, murder, of, of mercy and grace, whether we're murderers or just run-of-the-mill sinners. Darkness that hovers over this scene is representing this spiritual darkness of turning away from God as your sinner, rejecting his offer of new life, trying to do it on your own, trying to keep his mercy at bay by building up your own record. And it's depicted nowhere more sadly than here. We see darkness first, and then we see a curtain. 
In verse 45, we see the curtain of the temple that's torn in two. We see, first of all, the cosmic significance of Jesus' death, that is darkness, and then we see the cultic or religious significance, the temple curtain torn in two from top to bottom. And we see that this really happened. And it wasn't the disciples with a stepladder and a pocket knife cutting this curtain. And it wasn't Jesus jumping onto the curtain like Jack Sparrow with a big blade and sliding down the middle of it. Something supernatural is happening here, that the presence of God has been inflicted upon that temple veil. It happened, and yet it's freighted also with symbolic meaning. The death of Jesus is somehow connected with the tearing of this curtain. Now, a little background to give us a sense of what's going on here. The temple in Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish religious and social life. And this curtain wasn't like the curtain that you hang, you know, to cover light in your window. This curtain was much more like a wall. It was extremely thick, extremely heavy. It was a partition that kept people from going in to a certain place, that place being the Holy of Holies. It separated that place where God dwelled, where God is said to dwell most intensely. It separated that from the rest of the temple. You couldn't just accidentally stumble into the Holy of Holies. It was a protective curtain because if you did, you would die. And only the holiest men, holiest of men, the high priest, on the holiest of day, days, Yom Kippur, from the holiest nation, Israel, could enter the Holy, Holy of Holies. And then only one time a year, And they had to bring a blood sacrifice. And this is how it had been for 1,500 years or more. The sacrifice was the blood of an animal who had paid the ultimate price to offer a symbolic atonement for the sins of Israel as well as for the sins of the the high priest, the one who is offering the sacrifice. He couldn't even go in there without a sacrifice. 1,500 years or more of symbolism that God resides with us that he has come to make his, his dwelling place among the people of Israel. And yet, because he's so holy, so full of intense light, that we need this curtain to protect us, to shield our eyes. And what does Jesus' death do? It tears it in two. It opens up this most holy place. Jesus is said in Hebrews to be the curtain that he tears himself so that you and I can go in. We've been looking back at the book of Hebrews a number of times during this Passion Week narrative in the book of Luke because here we have the writer of Hebrews that is looking back upon these events and then applying significance for the Hebrew, the Jewish system of worship and saying, because this happened, here is why this matters. And he or she, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, gives us the significance and the application Chapter 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." For 1,500 years, the Jewish people had needed a high priest to represent them, to go on their behalf, to bring a sacrifice. 
But though being holy and set apart, he's still one of them. He's one of us, the Jewish people. He is one of us, a human. He must keep offering sacrifices. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says he stands day after day, symbolizing the fact that his work is never done. But Jesus comes and offers the one sacrifice finally for all sins. And what does he do? He sits. He completes the work. And he says on the cross, it is therefore finished. He has come and completed exactly what he set out to do. And what does that mean for you and me? We don't have to work too hard at application here because the writer of Hebrews gives us just a few verses later. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what then? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What do we do because of that? You draw near to God. God no longer stands in this one room that if you pull back the curtain that you die instantly. God says, no, come and be before me. Be welcomed and embraced before me because look at what my son has done. He has offered the one final sacrifice and so there, therefore you can have assurance Not because of what you have done, not because of your good life and good works, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. In spite of your demerit, in spite of all your negative works, you can still come with full confidence. The sacrifices, therefore, are no longer needed. A human high priest is, therefore, no longer needed. God invites you personally to come in. You are welcomed into that place where God's white-hot holiness once would kill you. You are welcomed into that place where the intense light of God exposes your every dark deed, all of your pride, all of your judgmentalism, all of your monsters. And yet, Jesus says, God the Father says, come into my presence so that you can be welcomed and embraced It's not important to know just that Jesus died, but why did Jesus die? Jesus died to open up the most holy place so that you could walk in. Jesus has split the curtain in two so that anyone can come in. The partition between God and humanity has been ripped and torn once and for all. Anyone can connect with God. Anyone can access him. And who takes advantage of it first? Who's the first to go in and meet with God in this new situation? It's the centurion, this Roman thug. Darkness, curtain, and then a witness. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. It's not the high priest that takes advantage, at least in the chronology of Luke. It's not the leading rabbi. It's not even a loyal disciple, but it's a battle-hardened thug. It's a centurion that's standing beside the cross, witnessing this death with a spear in his hand. 
he becomes the first human being to praise God for who he actually is, for who Jesus really is. And not only the first person to go into the presence of God in this new reality, but throughout Luke, he's the first person to accurately identify who Jesus really is. Throughout Luke, we've seen questions, we've seen guesses, we've seen stabs in the dark, we've seen people mocking Jesus because of who he claims to be. And this centurion guard says he was a righteous man. And then in Matthew and Mark, he goes even farther than that. In those gospel accounts, he says, surely he was the Son of God. This was the very thing that had gotten Jesus killed. This claim that he was the son of God and now this Roman centurion pagan thug says he certainly was exactly who he claimed to be. He's the picture of human hardness and brutality and darkness. Why is he the first one? Why is he the first one that gets to identify Jesus accurately and walk into the presence of God in this new reality? The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said. He'd seen this all before. His job, most likely, was to stand there and make sure that the person on the cross died. And then either to stab or break the legs of the person so to make sure that they died before the Passover came. He'd seen this all before, but something about Jesus' death was able to break through was able to pierce his tough exterior, was able to pierce his experience of this over and over. Something about the way that Jesus particularly died opened him up. We can't really psychoanalyze uh, analyze him from a distance, but we do know what he saw and what he heard. We know that after suffering beatings and mockings and a cruel death, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Jesus knew that he was suffering the penalty of others, not himself. And he doesn't say, Father, forgive me. He says, Father, forgive them. It is them he is dying for. The centurion no longer has the luxury of disassociating this process and his, his, his culpability in this. He's implicated. And it's not only because he's standing there with a spear. The essence of sin, as we have said above, as is simply not simply evil deeds, but it's man substituting himself for God. The essence of the cross is God substituting himself for man. You see, it's not just that the Roman centurion is standing there with a spear, that he's an actual murderer. It's that Evil, it's not just evil deeds, but it's man substituting himself for God. And the innocence of the cross is God substituting himself for man. You see, we assert ourselves and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim the prerogatives that belong to God, saying, God, you must orbit around me rather than setting our orbit around God. We claim prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. 
There's a transaction that's taking place on the cross. Jesus is going where he shouldn't be. It's unjust for him to be there. He's going where you and I should be. And his life, his, the taking of his life, is the very means by which you and I receive new life, where we come out of darkness into spiritual life, light. And this certainly wasn't easy. We see him sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see him asking, if, there, if there's any way, Father, would you take this cup from me? And we see this terrible death that his obedience leads him to. But to Jesus, the only thing that is worse than him receiving this penalty is you receiving it. That's what kept him going. That was his obedience. That was the joy set before him, is that you would be prevented from suffering in this way. So that you would be prevented from taking all of the world's sin on you. He did it on your behalf. The only thing worse than Jesus going to the cross in his mind is you going to the cross. The only thing worse than him receiving this penalty is you receiving it. In that, the centurion sees something that changes him. The most unlikely person is undone in the presence of God himself dying and offering forgiveness for the very ones that cause it. Now let's conclude this way. Not important, not just important to know that, but why? Not just important to know that he died and that these things, things happened, but why did he die and what does it mean to you and I? Maybe you've heard this story a hundred times. And so what's important for you is maybe not just what you learn, but what you now have to unlearn. You've learned to judge people based upon their performance, how they conform to a certain standard. And you need to unlearn this because this centurion had no performance to fall back upon. He had no life that he could offer up to God and say, because of this, would you accept me? In fact, he had all the demerit that we could possibly imagine, and Jesus grants him forgiveness. He had no record to fall back on. And if that's how Jesus treats the centurion, that's how he treats you and I, then how can we then hold things over other people's head? How can we then live in judgment of others or even judgment of ourselves? Maybe you've learned to exclude yourself from God's people and from God's embrace when things aren't going so well in your life. Maybe you've learned to exclude yourself from God and from his presence and from his people when you fall into a pattern of sin that you feel disqualifies you. You've learned that, and now you need to unlearn it by going repeatedly to God with full assurance and confidence that you'll be embraced in your worst moments. You need to unlearn what you've learned about sin and judgment and the separation between man and God and what constitutes that. You need to learn to go with full assurance and confidence, even in the worst of your moments. Maybe you've learned to carry around a load of shame towards your past behavior that you've done or that's been done to you. And you have this guilt and self-loathing and fear and anxiety. And you need to unlearn this by seeing that the temple curtain has been torn in two. And that every day that shame whispers in your ear 
you then say you're not speaking loud enough. That it becomes quieter and quieter. That that guilt and shame and fear, you begin to unlearn being completely responsible and beholden to it. And you say, no, I have a new Lord and Master. And this Lord and Master doesn't place demands and coercion over me. He goes to the cross for me. And so therefore I can let go of those past scars and those past fears and shame and guilt. As we come to the table, we bring our judgment. We bring all the ways that we've been excluded from this table, all the ways that we've excluded ourselves from this table. We bring our shame to this table. We bring our guilt to this table. And we see, here's how God deals with it. Here's how God responds to it. Does he say, no, go back and do better and then come and be welcomed? He says, no, I will offer my son on your behalf. I will offer my son to die for your shame and guilt and fear and past and future. That's what this table represents. And if you're a Christian, then come participate in this table along with those who belong to in-town because this is the way that God chooses to deal with all of those things through the shedding of blood, not yours, his. Through the broken body, not yours, his. Through hell coming down on his shoulders, not yours. That's what this meal represents, and it's a means of grace to draw you deeper into that. If you haven't yet become a member of Jesus' church through baptism, if you're still on the outside looking in, wondering whether you can believe this, and don't yet come to this table, because at this table, hell is placed on Jesus' shoulders so that joy can be had by everyone there, everyone present. The transaction on the cross is transacted again here for you so that you can be made whole and new. And if you haven't yet come into the church, then don't yet come to the table, but give us an opportunity to talk with you about that so that we can invite you to participate in this meal. Let me pray for us as we end our sermon and as we come to the table. Father, I pray that you would grant us an understanding of what it means to come to this table that we can come with eyes of joy, with a heart that is alive unto you because you have died for us. And Father, I pray that you would make this meal to be for us the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you fill us in all of the places that we need to be filled? Would you shine your light upon our darkness? And Lord, change us. Would you help us walk towards the light? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.